Millions of Canadians are still out of work and many are relying on the government to help make ends meet. But those benefits are about to end and the transition could be tricky. And how long can governments continue to supplement income with an economy suffering its own effects of the coronavirus pandemic? I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is why. When the federal government gave its fiscal snapshot earlier this year, the effects of this pandemic were staggering. Five and a half million Canadians were laid off or had hours cut between February and April. $202 billion was paid out in federal aid. And now four million Canadians will be affected when the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, transitions to EI. That last number comes from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And David McDonald is a senior economist with the Centre. And we're chatting with him about what could happen as Canada transitions from the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit to EI. So David, I guess my first question is, what's going to happen on September 27th? And what did your analysis find on the replacement for the CERB or CERB? Well, on September 27th, the CERB ends for people who've been on it continuously since the start of the pandemic, uh, March 15th. Um, If you weren't on it from the beginning, it can extend a little bit further into October. But in any event, um, people will be switching over uh, either September 27th or maybe a little bit later in October from the CERB to to EI or to some new uh, programs that that are called uh, Canada Recovery Programs. At present, uh, there's 4 million Canadians who are receiving the CERB on a regular basis, and that's been fairly consistent over much of August. And so it'll be around 4 million people that will do this transition off of CERB onto EI or one of these new uh, recovery benefits or potentially receive no support whatsoever. There's about half a million people that uh, that will drop off of support uh, once CERB ends. So uh, these CERB replacement programs, um, they still need to be approved by Parliament, correct? Some of them do. The changes to EI uh, do not need to be uh, reviewed by Parliament. Uh, those those have already been completed. However, um, the CR benefits or Canada Recovery benefits, those have those are those are not legislation. Those have not been approved by Parliament. They are suggestions that that may or may not pass following the speech from the throne on the twenty third. Um, this is the Canada Recovery Benefit. This is for self-employed and gig workers. Um, there's the, the Canada Recovery Caregiver Benefit, uh, and this is for people who have to uh, take time off because the kids can't go to school because schools are closed, child cares are closed. Um, and so these benefits uh, have yet to be created. Um, they're suggestions at this point. Now, the speech from the throne uh, is going to come on September 23rd. CERB ends on September 27th. Uh, so you can see there's not really a lot of time between the time that uh, Parliament comes back and the time that uh, CERB ends, and therefore people would have to apply for these new programs. So do the CERB replacements, as proposed, cover everyone who was on CERB or CERB? They don't. Um, There's about half a million of the four million people uh, who will not receive support. Uh, There's a couple different reasons for that. Um, The first reason is um, a small group will hit the the income uh, limit uh, for the CRB, this is one of the new programs, um, and so they'll they'll have made too much already in 2020, so they won't be covered, even though uh, they would be receiving CERB. Um, there's a group that will likely qualify for EI's Working Well on Claim program, um, but it won't give them very much. It only give them under $50 a week, and so they likely just won't apply. It's not not worth it. And there's a big group of people um, who are low wage workers with few hours um, that that uh, regained all of their low wage, low hour jobs um, after an interruption. 
Um, however, so they, they would they they would earn under the earning threshold for CERB, and so they would have received CERB. Um, but because they went back to their regular hours, they were just very low hours. That doesn't make them eligible for anything. And so that's the largest group. But there's there's just over 400,000 people in that group, uh, and so they won't, won't receive any benefits. But more broadly speaking, I mean, on average, uh, you know, the CERB was very straightforward. It provided $500 a week. That's it. You couldn't get more. You couldn't get less. You always received $500 a week. Um, Depending on which program you go to uh, after serve, what you're eligible for, you could receive a whole variety of different benefits. Uh, and so the average amount that people will get after CERB uh, will fall from $500 a week on average to $377 a week. And so um, that's a drop of, of, on average, just over you know $120. Um, and the other piece I think to understand is that SERB uh, did not deduct taxes at source. It is taxable, so you will owe taxes on that in March if you did receive SERB, um, but you didn't. They weren't deducted at source. You got the full five hundred dollars. That's what came into your bank account. Um, on average, uh, post SERB, people receive three hundred and seventy-seven dollars. But now all the programs are deducting taxes at source, and so instead of getting that average three seventy-seven. Um, folks will make uh, less than that, you know, probably in the neighborhood of 350 on average. So for just, uh, you know, it's not necessarily better or worse to have it withdrawn now as opposed to in March. However, I think people need to be prepared for the fact that once CERB ends, even if they are eligible for one of these new programs, they'll likely receive a lot less than they received on CERB in the neighborhood of 100 to $200 less a week. Wow. Wow. So um, I guess my next question is, is where does the CERB uh, change leave students? Um, I mean, especially graduates. When it comes to students, um, you know, if students were, uh, you know, if they were employed on on March 15th or they were employed and then became unemployed because of the pandemic, uh, they would be eligible for CERB. Um, And depending on their circumstances, they might be eligible for the CRB if they're, you know, they're doing gig work or if it's more traditional work, they they would likely be eligible for EI. Uh, EI has been changed pretty significantly, two big changes to EI. Um, The first is that the number of hours required to get in the door is substantially lower. So, uh, you know, in Toronto, it would have taken you 700 hours that you would have had to have worked in the previous year to get into EI. Now it only take you 120. So far easier to get into EI. So this will certainly help students who don't necessarily have a lot of hours. Uh, and the other way that EI has changed is that there's a new floor on benefits at $400. Um, so that's certainly less than $500 on SIR. But prior to that change, you could make you know, $200 a week on EI. There was no, there was no lower limit to it. Uh, that's changed now. And so it's, so it's, it's a lot of people will hit that floor and make the, the $400 uh, a month. And so students, I think if they have a bit of work under their belts, um, w- are more likely to be eligible for EI due to these changes. Um, but they're not going to make the, you know, if they were getting served, they're probably not going to make the $500 the more make you know, in the 400 or a little bit less, depending on if they're still working. Now, when it comes to students, generally, if they didn't get the CERB, uh, you know, there was a student benefit, an emergency student benefit that ran over the course of the summer. That's running out and there's no replacement for that. And so uh, those folks will, will cease to receive benefits. David, could this change help those who haven't been on CERB? One of the interesting features, actually, of this analysis is that there's actually over 300,000 people who didn't receive CERB. They weren't eligible for CERB, but they will be eligible for EI when EI returns on September 27th. Um, this is, in some cases, it's people who weren't paid very much. Um, you know, they were low wage and they didn't have a lot of hours. 
they'd have enough hours to qualify for EI, but they wouldn't have made enough to qualify for CERB. CERB had to make $5,000 in the previous year. Um, and so there's a group of people that are now going to gain access to EI. They didn't, you know, they were laid off during the pandemic and they'll gain access to EI. Um, and there's a big group of people who will, who will uh, likely be able to benefit from EI's subprogram called Working While on Claim. And what that allows you to do is be on EI while you're working a little bit. Mm. So, uh, you know, maybe you lost half your hours, you go back half your hours and EI claws back what you're making, but you still get a bit from EI. Uh, and there's a big group of people who weren't CERB eligible. They didn't, they, they couldn't receive CERB, but they will likely be able to receive um, a part of EI clawed back through this working well on claim program. Interesting. Interesting. So I guess my next question is, David, is how much uh, could the CRCB, the CRB and CRSB um, cost per year, let's say, or, or per quarter? Well, it really depends on, on how many people continue to, to need government support. Um, and so uh, it, it, you know, we, we're reducing the benefit levels uh, for most people from the $500 a week that they were getting on CERB to, again, you know, just under $400, you know, $380 on average uh, for people on, on the variety of new benefits. I mean, we're going to save money because half a million people are going to get the boot. They're not going to get benefits at all. Um, we're going to save money because a lot of people, instead of making 500 a week, will make 400 a week. Now, if those folks uh, get jobs, then uh, it will cost less. Uh, if we see a, a second need for a second shutdown, it will cost more. Uh, I mean, at th- I think at this point going to the fall, it's difficult to say um, it's difficult to say exactly how much it's going to cost because we really don't know whether we'll have to shut down industries again. I mean, I suspect that um, with the end of the wage subsidy program, which is helping employers keep employees on the payroll, even if there isn't work for them, um, that program is now winding down. Um, the criteria are, are stricter now, and so it's going to be harder uh, for for employers to keep employees on, even if they don't really have a lot of work for them. Those folks are going to roll onto these systems. Um, and if we see additional uh, shutdowns, or we, or, or we start to see, say, school closures or childcare closures, uh, which was a huge issue for parents, particularly women, um, in the in the early months of the pandemic. Again, all those folks will roll into these systems as well. In particular, there's a benefit built for them called the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit, um, and so we would like to likely again see counts rise as people are booted out of work and they can't work because their kids can't go to school, or they can't work because their employer had to lay their employers had to lay them off. Or they can't work because, um, you know, businesses tried to make a go of it over the summer uh, and they just found that they couldn't and the bills are piling up and they decide in the fall that, uh, you know, as, as business evaporates in the fall and winter, uh, you know, particularly think of like restaurants and hospitality, mm-hmm. um, that they just can't make a go of it. And so, again, you know, those businesses go bankrupt, but then all their employees get laid off and they also end up on these programs. With a second wave or, you know, a supposed second wave of the coronavirus on its way, will all of this be enough to get Canadians who can't work through that second wave and, of course, any associated economic slowdown? Uh, I mean, these programs are better than the EI system we had in February going into this. They, they cover more people. Um, EI is, is more generous because of the floor, but it's not as expansive or generous as CERB was. And so we're, we're in the middle here. Um, one of the reasons why consumer spending didn't fall as quickly um, this time around in this recession as it did in previous recessions was because the CERB was created. So a lot of people, 
lost work, lost income, applied to the CERB. It was easy to apply to. The benefits got to you quickly. You didn't have to do all this paperwork and mess about. Um, you, you could get the money quickly. And as a result, people continued to spend money supporting you know, businesses again in their community because they had money coming in the door. Now, the more we start to cut back on those benefits um, for people who uh, are laid off or lose work, um, the less people are going to spend in the economy. And so there's an economic impact here of trying to save a few bucks by uh, by taking it, uh, you know, out of the bank accounts of people who are unemployed. Um, you know, these programs, I, I think, are are in decent shape. I mean, the the one thing that that is worth pointing out is that EI is not an easy program to apply to. Uh, there are delays that that uh, anyone who's applied to ER are well familiar with. I mean, you can, you know, you can be unemployed and go back and get a job, and two months later you get your EI check. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not very helpful to people um, when the EI check comes much, much later. We're going to go back to that system. I mean, half of the people on CERB, uh, 2 million people are going to roll back into the EI system on September 27th. And um, it's not on an attestation basis like the CERB was, so you don't just go to a website and check a box that says you're eligible, and then they work out the paperwork. you got to get that paperwork in first. Um, you know, for instance, even at this point, there's 800,000 people who are receiving the CERB, but they're receiving it through the wrong portal. They're receiving it through the, the Canada Revenue Agency portal where you where you get $2,000 every four weeks. They are going to have to go apply for EI. And if they don't apply for EI, they're going to get nothing. Their, their applications are not going to be ported automatically. And so this is just an example of the kind of confusion that's going to start to result on the 27th. But then again, if we see, you know, shutdowns or, or additional business bankruptcies coming uh, out of the fall once the summer, you know, tourist season is, is wrapped up, um, again, these folks are going to have to get into the I system. They're going to have all their paperwork in order. It's not on an attestation basis. And so the more you make it hard for people to get into these programs, uh, the more miserly the programs are, the less likely it is people are going to keep spending in the economy and instead they're going to hoard their money because they have to because there's no other money coming in. And there's an economic impact to that as well. So, Adam, we heard from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives about how hundreds of thousands of Canadians could be left in the lurch during the transition from CERB to EI. But running these programs costs money. Right, and that bill is mounting, and that mounting bill has some Canadians concerned about the amount of debt the government will take on. In the fiscal snapshot earlier this year, the Fed's projected a $343 billion deficit, resulting in $1.2 trillion with a T dollars in debt. That is a lot of money. Right? Let's find out how deeper in debt the Canadian government can go. Trevor Toome is an associate professor in economics at the University of Calgary and joins us. Thanks for your time, Trevor. My pleasure. Great to be here. So Trevor wanted to talk about uh, government debt, but let's start with uh, something that maybe more of our audience is, is familiar with. If you or I want to go and borrow money, we can either go to friends or family or to financial institutions to borrow. But it's a little different for governments. I'm wondering if you can explain how governments uh, get debt. How, how do they borrow money? Sure. So when you or I walk into the bank and make an application for a loan, you know, that's one way to borrow money. But governments and large corporations, uh, when when you're borrowing substantial amounts of money, you don't go to a bank and take out a a typical loan. What you do is you you sell what's called a bond. It's really like an IOU where you as a government or as a large corporation or other large institution, you commit to repay a certain amount in the future. And if Uh, the market, if investors, if people with loanable funds have confidence in your commitment to repay that amount later, then they're willing to pay today for that promise. So that's that's typically how you borrow funds as a government or as a large corporation. 
pretty recently, the the federal government put out a, a financial snapshot, and they said that uh, uh, as part of the coronavirus relief efforts that they've been trying to do, they've provided direct federal aid to individuals and businesses of two hundred and twelve billion dollars. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Of money. Uh, And of course, Mm -hmm. all orders of government are feeling the pinch during this pandemic. They're having to spend more than uh, more than they're able to take in. Uh, For example, cities ran buses that were empty in the late spring and early summer. Uh, Provinces are having to step up to pay for coronavirus testing that a year ago they didn't have to do. Uh, And of course, the federal government rolling out CERB and other programs. Um, Can all orders of government, federal, provincial, municipal, accumulate accumulate debt, have they been able to do that during this pandemic? Well, they they certainly have been able to do it in the sense that they have been issuing bonds to borrow funds in order to cover these additional expenses. And in addition, they need to cover the revenue shortfalls that are also occurring during the pandemic. The economic lockdown means lower employment, lower income, lower profits. That means less in income tax payments personal and corporate. And for a while there, people were buying a lot less stuff, and that's going to mean less in sales tax revenue, GST, for example. And, you know, that adds to the size of these government deficits and means that they do have to borrow more to bridge that gap between revenue and spending. Uh, Interestingly, though, during the crisis, a lot of the bonds that were being issued by governments were not being purchased by the market in the usual sense. Uh, They were being purchased by Canada's central bank, the Bank of Canada, which has really been aggressively purchasing uh, government bonds to ensure that the money is available for governments to cover these um, kind of crisis-related expenses. So there is an open question now around how and how quickly or even indeed whether uh, the central bank will begin to unwind some of these positions and put those bonds back into the hands of private investors, which is usually where government bonds end up. But that's that's not a challenge unique to Canada. I think um, most countries around the world are doing that very same thing. And so it, it certainly is an issue. But mechanically, a lot of the dollars that are there for governments to spend are there because of our central bank. So uh, just a for my own curiosity, the central mm-hmm. bank, was that, did they purchase that from like reserves that they had or was that, were they buying debt with debt or where does that all, where, where did the money come from that they were buying those bonds with? Right. That, that's an interesting question. And it, ultimately when a central bank buys something, uh, really in principle, when they buy anything, uh, they can do so with printed money. So they are the entity in Canada that creates the money that we use in our day-to-day transactions. And central banks uh, exist in lots of countries, the Bank of England, for example, the Federal Reserve in the United States, uh, the European Central Bank. So countries have these entities to control the money supply. And these, these bonds that the Bank of Canada is purchasing, you should think of them as not purchasing those bonds with money that came from somewhere, they're purchasing those bonds by creating new money. And that is a monetary policy choice that at least during a crisis certainly makes a lot of sense. And every single central bank uh, in in a developed economy at least has been doing that, that very thing. But it does, of course, raise a concern around inflation. You know, to what extent does additional money created by a central bank 
lead inflation to be higher than it otherwise would. So that's that's certainly something that many, uh, no doubt, those in the central bank are keeping a close eye on, and that's the trade-off here. Inflation is a potential trigger for all of this um, buying of the central uh, of the central bank buying all of these governments' debts. Um, that inflation could be a trigger for things to go really badly. I'm thinking, um, and I, I, there's probably a, you know a, a, a hundreds of examples of this happening, or maybe dozens, but many examples in the past of governments, you know, printing money um, and and then inflation going at a runaway pace and that That's ruining right. their economies. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm wondering what uh, what are some signals that inflation is increasing, and at what point would uh, that amount of would would a, a, an oversized amount of debt that we're seeing right now that we haven't seen since what World War II? Um, at what point does that become does the does inflation become a real problem? Yeah, great question. Let me unpack that a little bit. Certainly, historically, we have seen many instances of countries that go through periods of incredibly high hyperinflation, where, you know, Zimbabwe is a recent example, but I think we all were taught in school the experience of of Germany after the First World War, for Mm -hmm. example. So we're not... And that is not what we're looking at in any kind of realistic um, near-term future here or in other developed economies. But inflation creeping up even to just higher, moderate levels, we saw that in in uh, the 1970s here in Canada and in the United States, for example. And it's a real challenge to bring that inflation rate back down. It requires tight monetary policy that we saw in the early 80s that at the time that may have potentially caused uh, and almost certainly exacerbated a recession, a very deep one a few decades ago. So central banks have learned lessons from those experiences. And now for many decades in Canada, we've been targeting inflation at this low, moderate amount of one to three percent per year. And we've basically succeeded for the past quarter century at meeting that target. So the Bank of Canada has a lot of credibility here, but um, uh, we shouldn't fear that it's a foregone conclusion that inflation is going to creep up because I think historically they do a good job at trying to make sure it stays in this band. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, with with all the lessons that, that uh, you know, um, governments have learned, and uh, especially, you know, in Canada as far as managing debt and inflation uh, and deficits and, and, and the like, what, how much debt can governments accrue now? Uh, and, and, yeah, I, I, like, is, is there a limit? I know that if I go to a bank for a mortgage, there's going to be a limit based on my income, credit history, et cetera. Um, is is there is is there a limit, or can can or is the sky the limit for for say the Canadian government? Well, that that is the question, and uh, what makes providing an answer to that question difficult is that it depends. It depends <laughs> on a lot of factors that varies uh, across governments and over time. So I, you can look at uh, the overall level of debt that the Japanese government holds, for example. So this is a government that has for now quite some time borrowed significantly to levels that lead the amount of Japanese government debt relative to its economy to be roughly triple the overall size of economic activity there. Whereas in a country like Greece, uh, you had a financial crisis and a debt crisis result from much lower levels uh, of debt in that country. So it varies. And then in Canada, 
you have provincial governments that are very large, uh, effectively, you know, maybe not this year, but prior to COVID had more debt combined than the federal government and provinces themselves face unique situations. So while it's true that in Canada, the total amount of debt is going to exceed 100% of the economy for the first time since the 1990s, and it's going to reach a level this year higher than at any point outside of, or any, any point since World War II, that itself doesn't raise, I think, some short-term sustainability concerns because interest rates are extremely low right now. So I think the question then becomes, you know, in the future, what will interest rates be? Are they going to rise substantially relative to where they are right now? And then more importantly, what happens to our economy? A growing economy, one that gets larger as time goes on, it gets easier and easier to sustain and carry debt. So economists like to look at the debt to GDP ratio, and that can fall if economic growth rates are strong. So productivity is going to matter a lot in the future. Toom has teamed up with a number of academics from across the country to develop financesofthenation.ca, a website with analysis and tools to look at the debt due to the coronavirus and the factors in paying down that debt. You can even play with figures like interest rates and growth rates to see how that debt changes. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and wear a mask. We'll see you soon.